The Legendarium Podcast is brought to you by, by you. So please visit patreon.com slash legendarium to, to support the show. But for now, welcome, welcome to, to the, the Legendarium. Well, hang on a minute. How is this a bonus episode when it's our first one on the Kingkiller Chronicle? Well, I'll level with you. This one is not our best effort. The sound quality is pretty awful with some new equipment. Sorry about that. And honestly, our discussion stayed pretty surface level and we didn't get to some of the more interesting stuff that we really should have. So we've decided to give ourselves a mulligan and we're going to do this one over again next week. So we'll see you then. Until then, uh, enjoy this one, I guess. Hi, everybody. That was so much better. Hello, friends. Do the gym dance. Hello, As friends. you can tell, we're Hello, really... friends. <laughs> Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. We're off to a wonderful start. This is that's the, Here's the thing. Uh, we're not, because this is a big deal. This is a big deal episode. We'll get to that in just a moment. I should be, I should be on my A game, but this, like, I can't even make JV today, so... Oh, We'll see how it goes. Anyway, welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. I am Craig Hanks, your host. And, uh, well, over there, he's stringy, like a lute. But he keeps rebuffing my attempts to pluck him. It's Ryan Bruckman. you got to string me right first. <laughs> Just two fingers. And if this podcast is hillside material, then he is most definitely a dockside kind of guy. It's Kyle Lemon. Smells fishy. And if he opened an inn in the middle of nowhere, it would be called the Lonely Peasant. It's Ken Johnson. <laughs> I had a remark about Taylor and his great glowing penis, but I, I just couldn't make it work. You couldn't Whoa. fit it in there. I couldn't fit it <laughs> in <laughs> with the two fingers. Thank you, all of you who came for the name of the wind and are now it leaving was, us. It was, <laughs> nice to, it was nice to have you. We, we had a good well, time. Had Ken, a good run. Uh, <laughs> Ken, we like to just work the blue comedy into like, you know, the 20-minute mark, maybe. So if you could just work with Save that for the after party. So anyway, uh, yes, welcome, everybody. We're glad that you've joined us. And, uh, <laughs> if, well, sort of. We're, I, I guess Ryan's not. Sorry. Welcome to the council of men who have crossed their legs. Oh, jeez. No, I'm not doing that. You're all, yeah, this is Setting weird. That down right now. Uh, so speaking holding of, strong. Speaking of uh, <laughs> visual cues, if you are listening to this, then... Um, then welcome, and I hope that you go on iTunes and subscribe, or subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed, uh, but definitely go to iTunes and uh, leave a review. We very much appreciate if you do that, and also tell your friends about the show. If you are not listening, then that must mean you're watching, and if you are, welcome. Uh, welcome to our YouTube channel, which so far, sucks, <laughs> but it's going to get better. Uh, no, if you have not yet, and I know that, because we've got like, it's like 250 subscribers, so I know that there are lots of you out there who have not yet gone to YouTube and subscribed, you should do so. We've got some plans for some pretty fun stuff uh, coming up on there, so go subscribe. Just go to YouTube, search The Legendarium, and we pop right up, and so go do that. Well, uh, oh, and I'll also mention... The legendarium.reddit.com is where you can go join the conversation. We have uh, some pretty decent conversations happening there. So if you are new to the podcast, like I know many of you will be, go check us out on Reddit and join us there for the after show uh, threads. The official sort of skewering thing. of our yes. analysis. <laughs> well, that brings me to my next point. <laughs> um, this is a big deal because today is our first 
Name of the Wind episode, and this has been a, a long time coming, shall we say. Yes. Uh, people are very excited about this, rightfully so. This is a, uh, th this is a very, uh, what do I want to say? It's sort of a divisive book series, because a lot of people will say this is the greatest thing of all time. Other people will say it's overrated. Uh, we're here to solve all of that. It's, it's passionate. Because internet problems can be solved very easily. You are right, by more interneting, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah, so that's, that's what brings us here. Anyway, so th this is a very divisive issue. In fact, yesterday I posted something on Facebook. Excuse me, I'm spitting now. Uh, I posted something on Facebook, and it was a picture of Pat Rothfuss. And I, I said, you know, I said something like, three more days until our first Name of the Wind episode. If you could ask Patrick Rothfuss any question, you know, if you could ask him one question, what would it be? Well, between the picture and that, people assumed that he was coming on the show. Oh. For which, for which I do not apologize. <laughs> you were all taken in. <laughs> I didn't mean to trick you all, but I wasn't sad when it happened. Um, but anyway, so there, it just got a ton of comments. Uh, a ton of people weighed in on this, and not all of them were very friendly. I even told them to keep it civil, uh, but uh, not all of them were very friendly. Uh, most of them were very, you know, uh, were very pro Rothfuss. But there's a contingent out there that I think is pretty angry at the guy. So yeah. this, this is going to be interesting waters for us to navigate. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm really looking forward to, as you said, Kyle, the skewering of the legendarium that's going yes. to happen on Reddit and elsewhere. Because at some point, it's guaranteed. If the studio goes feet, up in blue flame, are, you know. Feet are going in mounts. It's happening. So this is not that kind of video, but whatever. Some uh, people are into that. Yeah, whatever. I'm, Wait for the recap. <laughs> so speaking of recaps, uh, I, we started a new tradition with our Oathbringer episodes. And we're continuing that today. Ken Johnson and is going to recap for us. You get it live, people. We'll do it so, live. Wait. <laughs> we'll do it live. Yes. Ready, set, wait, wait. Wait, wait. Don't. Uh, I should also mention, just so people know, this is chapters 1 through 35. We are not spoiling anything beyond that, if we can help it. Um, but, uh, but anything in those chapters of Name of the Wind is fair game. That's what you're recapping for us, Ken. That is what I'm Ready? recapping for. And Set. I have never seen this ever, so are you going to say yes? All right, here we go. Hear this recap three times, people. The Name of the Wind is the story of a gregarious innkeeper who, shocker, may not be exactly what he seems. The important fact here is that he has red hair, apparently. Oh, and he's also the king killer in hiding, and this is his chronicle. So it turns out that Coat is actually Kvoth, a Nadeem prodigy with a perfect memory who can memorize lyrics, pick up skills with little effort, who also happens to be some kind of a thing of superstition and legend. He's living a quiet life in hiding until demon spider things start attacking people, forcing Kavoth to come out of retirement and do some pest control. A king killer newspaper man shows up at Kavoth's tavern asking questions, so he tells the chronicler of how he, be, how he uh, grew up in a traveling, performing family, learning magic from Abinthi Kenobi, who instructs the young Padawan <laughs> in the ways of sympathy, which is an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. He also hopes to learn the power of names, especially the name of the wind, until one day old Ben settles down with a widow woman and the entire traveling family is set afire by Chandrian demon men. 
From there, well, let's get back here. This is so confusing. That's welcome <laughs> to the name of the wind. From there, Kvothe decides to leave the family moisture farm, learn the ways of sympathy, and become a Jedi like his father. Wait, that's <laughs> the wrong story. Sorry. So with his family destroyed, the Chandrian run off before they can kill him too. Kvothe survives in the woods for months on his own until his loot strings break, and he has to make his way to the big city where he trades lessons in music, acting, and sympathy for years of hard knocks, studies, and begging, thievery, and street-tough beatings. He also learns how to compa about compassion from the lowest, from a... Uh, from a kindly preacher man. Oh, and he also learns how to vengeance burn a rival with some hard liquor and a match. He's finally cobbling together an existence for himself in this town, but then a story within a story, told during a story, and also coming across the monsters who slaughtered his entire troop, kickstart to both back into action, he cleans himself up, heads for the university with the goal to destroy the Chandri and avenge his family. So, questions, because I love questions. What comes with the spider things? Is Denna the girl that we're supposed to not know about? Uh, what is Bast and how is he? How did he come to be associated with Kavoth? How long until Kavoth gets kicked out of Hogwarts school for sympathy and naming? Does the does he kill the king in this book or is it in the next one or is it book three? So we'll never actually actually get to see him kill the king. And remember, people, true recaps seldom take the straightest way. And for the record, I was unmoved by the lay of Sir Savian Trilliard. That is one through thirty-five of the limited. We're going to re-record that. Yeah, that's we'll, we'll have. And do something with that. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a thing. That was a thing. Um, okay. Good try. Good, good practice run. It was, uh, <laughs> that's right. Better luck next time, Ken. Whatever. Uh, on your intro. I, you know, I just feel like Star it was the obvious, it was the obvious choice. Star Wars. It was the obvious choice because that was the choice. It was, it's the best. It was obvious. <laughs> uh, okay, so maybe Come on, the, the energy the best... field thing was hilarious. I was just going to record sure. it. You guys are. <laughs> I'm funnier when you guys aren't when I'm not here. It's true. You well, whatever. <laughs> uh, maybe the smartest thing to do in talking about the book would be to start at the beginning. There's a lot to talk about in chapters one through thirty-five, but let's talk about the first few chapters, which is Coat and Bast and Chronicler, who shows up uh, after a moment. Uh, so we have this framing device, and I want to talk about the, the the device itself in a bit. But the first few chapters were with adult, uh, adult, were with adult coat, and Ryan. What was your impression as you were making your way through these again? Because you read this years ago, right? I read the first, I've read the Name of the Wind. I haven't read um, Wise Man's Fear yet. Um, but the my initial impression of reading this, it took me a minute to realize the alternate style that we were going to be dealing with here, because I I liked I, at first I was kind of confused. This coat Kavoth thing going on, yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. The first chapters of any epic fantasy are always like, okay, where where am I? That's, what am I? What's going on here? Like, I need yeah. I need something to get my bearings. And I it took me a little bit to catch, like, okay, who's who's my first person I'm following here? And we we get coat, and we're like, okay, there's more to him than meets the eye. Um, no, not, it was not a transformer uh -huh. reference. <laughs> um, and for me, that was, was like okay. Now I have a bearing. I know where I'm, where I'm looking now. Um, and then that got turned on its head as soon as it's like, well, I'm going to tell you a code's going to tell yeah, you a story. Yeah, yeah. So I, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, it's interesting to see where fantasy literature has come from and where it is now. I think this was published in 2007, yeah. right? But uh, anyway, but this is very much contemporary fantasy literature. Um, 
so I, I go back all the way to the Lord of the Rings, um, which is kind of the first modern epic fantasy uh, as we know it today. And the Lord of the Rings starts, it, it basically it puts you in England. And so it doesn't do that thing we're talking about where it's like, where am I? How do I relate to anything that's going on? And you just kind of have to trust what's going on or that, that you'll understand what's going on a little bit later. Lord of the Rings, he doesn't do that. He like plunks you down in something that is very familiar, or at least would have been, you know, to his readers in back in the day. And then you go on through the decades. I think of something like the Sword of Shannara, which is pretty similar to Tolkien, where you drop him into Shady Vale, and it's like, you know, everybody talks and acts just like you would, you know, kind of expect them to. It's a small town environment. Maybe it's something you would recognize from a western, or something like that. And now we've come far enough in the decades that follow where it's like if you if you like epic fantasy, you know that you're just going to have to trust that you'll figure it out eventually, that you'll get your bearings. And this is like this example, and I love the Mistborn example as well, because in the first pages of Mistborn, it's like Kelsier burned tin and walked to the manor house. And it's like, what the f is going on? And you, nobody has any idea. And um, this is kind of a similar thing, where it's like, I don't know who these people are. I don't know, like, all these towns have weird names. Um, it, you know, it's but kind of that same, it's on that continuum, right? Yes, right. but the thing is, there's still some familiarity to it in terms of uh, you're able to establish pretty quick that we're dealing with standard fantasy fare in terms of an inn. Sure. Okay, we're not, we're not, yeah. He's not pulling up to a Motel 6 here. He's not doing anything like that. <laughs> So there, we get an idea as to kind of when and what to start shaping this world around. And then we realize, at least for me, that there is a semi-religious aspect to it when we start hearing about like using iron to iron, warn off, yeah. ward off demons. And things. I'm like, okay, so we're going to be dealing with demons. We're gonna, that's kind of the, the arc we're going to be dealing with. It's not necessarily like giants or whatever. They might be there, but this is where... It's familiar enough ground that I can trust and move forward, but still new enough that I'm looking around going, what, where is this exactly, and what do I, what do I need to know? Where do my eyes need to be looking right now? So we learned pretty early on that Bast is a demon, as far as I can tell, yeah. right? Cloven hooves, the whole deal, right? He's a demon. Um, Kyle, at this point, in The Name of the Wind by Chapter 35, do you care... About, about, about Bast. Bast and his backstory. Because I feel like, okay, so we've got Coat, we've got our main character, and we want to hear how we got to where he's at. But then there's this Bast guy. Mm -hmm. And there's this whole, like, there's this whole episode where he and Chronicler almost kill each other and all mm -hmm. this stuff. And I feel like I'm being asked, asked to care about Bast, and I, and I don't yet. Like, I'm not, um, I'm not curious about him. How do you I mean, I, I don't know that I care about Bast as, as an individual necessarily, but I definitely care about why he's there. Um, I think it's, you know, it's obviously pretty heavy that there are demons in the world. Kvothe's had to deal with them. And so I'm, I'm, I care about Bast in the sense of I'm really curious as to how he, what he, what role he plays. Because Bast and Coates' relationship, or Kvothe's relationship, however you want to call him, because when you're stepping out into the framing, he's almost always Coat, but he'll sometimes refer to himself as Kvothe. Um, the relationship between the two is re really interesting to me because 
Bast calls him something different than what everybody else calls him. Either everybody Reshi. calls him Coat, Bast calls him Reshi, and I'm taking that as more of like a like a master or a mm -hmm. sensei type of title. Um, and uh, Bast knows who Coat really is, and so if Coat has gone off and He's got his own inn. He's out in the middle of nowhere. 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 Yeah. Noir. And uh, <laughs> he doesn't want people to know who he is because the whole point is that he's hiding. He's got this apprentice-like figure that knows maybe not his whole backstory, but at least knows somewhat of who he is. And so I'm really curious as to how that plays into it. So when do we, when do we meet Bast in the framed story that, that Kvothe's telling us? So like I said, I don't, I don't, really care that like he and chronicler got into it i'm not like oh what's going on like when i don't know i just i want to know more they're all his purpose and there's a whole bunch of things that are done in the beginning where the purpose to me seems that here is a breadcrumb that you are going to want to know about later on it's the, the teaser trailer to the rest of the series mm -hmm. it's like he hangs up to that sword that he has that has a special thing made you know, and Bast is part of that. So we have these things that we're sitting here that are, if we care just enough about them now and to be aware of their existence, we want to know where they enter into the story as a whole, um, which will keep you driven to find out. At a certain point, like if, if Bast doesn't show up until the very, very end of the story, like that to me would be, that'd be kind of annoying. <laughs> sure. <laughs> like, he doesn't have to come in immediately, and the sword doesn't have to come in immediately. I think there's plenty to build to that. But you have put in so many Chekhov's guns. You've, you've loaded this in with Chekhov's guns. Right, the, right. the mantle is a, a veritable armoring at this I, point. I don't want a 21-gun salute in the last 100 pages of, of this <laughs> series. I want, to, I want it as I'm going through the whole thing. Now, that's an interesting thing to bring up. I, at a certain point, I, I wonder if we ought to start keeping track of unanswered questions. I haven't been keeping track of them, but uh, but there are a ton of un unanswered questions that he brings up right away, so we'll see where that goes. Kyle, you were about to say something? Um, that just kind of, you know, we skipped over the prologue, which is one of the key points, I think, because so, it sets the tone. Remind us. Um, I mean, it's about the silence of three parts, and this is really heavily acclaimed by a lot of people, just the prose and... Oh and how boy. poetic it is. Are we getting into that right now? No. Doing that? Okay. No. Let's, let's save <laughs> but that. The, but the point is, is one of the first lines in that prologue is that the first silence was made by things that were lacking. And so something I've been trying to do as we're reading through, this is my second time reading through The Name of Wind, is what is it that he's not saying? Um, what is it that, that Rothfuss is not telling us and keeping track of that? So it's kind of the same idea as those like, like who is Bast? What's the like? Who was the woman? Like that Ken mentioned in his intro. Uh, what's the box that they talked about? That's up in the up in the room. Things like that. And like, what is he not telling us? Because um, I think that's kind of what we're talking about here. Right. So, and he sets that tone in the very second line of the whole thing. Is it's made of things that are lacking. So. And I, I took that more to be along the lines of um, things that he missed. So if there's sure. this woman, it's like, well, she was in his life and now she's not. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. There's mm -hmm. a lot of things that we're going to read about that are going to die or disappear mm -hmm. or whatever. Sure. Yeah. I think uh, 
I think the one thing that I've learned reading this book in particular is that Rothfuss does a really good job of using the same phrase to mean many different things, not even just one, two, whatever. Like it can be multiple things. So. Yeah. I'll be interested. Do you have any examples of that offhand uh, as um, we go through the discussion? I can probably pull one or two up, but I don't want to spoil anything. So uh, okay, I'll I'll leave it then. Um, let's get into the so into the framing device now. So Coat is beginning to tell his story, uh, the story of Quoth, and he says something interesting. By the way, before we start with anything else, which is he says this is in many ways a story about the Chandrian. And I, okay, so I've read this book before, but it was a long time ago. I remember Jack about it, honestly. Um, and so even as somebody who's read it before, I saw that and went, okay, that's a line I'm going to need to remember because the story is going to, even he says it, Coat says, it's going to meander, it's going to wander. Right. And that's something we need to probably keep in mind. This is a story about the Chandrian. So anyway, it's it's interesting too because he actually starts telling his story three different ways before he decides to land on uh, going through. Yeah. Um, so even he like I mean like you said he's gonna meander he's gonna wander but the story is about the Chandrian but it's also about so he says in some ways it began when I heard her singing so he, it's talking about that woman that Ken brought up no it began at the university so and that's where we I mean that's where we're gonna end this whole podcast. At podcast episode is but when he gets to the university um, and then he says no it actually started why I you know what led me to go to the university which was the Chandrian and so like even even coat doesn't really know like how to begin his own story or you can take that as you know there are several beginnings to this story yeah I mean he could you could theoretically say well when I was young and I was a traveling rue the Chandrian attacked my family because my father was writing a song, and I decided to get revenge on them, and so I went to the university. And, and let's pick up there. Let's pick up there. You could do that. Well, there's but when he is. I'm not saying that's a good idea. So you could <laughs> do that. It's, it's there's, an idea. There, I'm skipping ahead a little bit. Forgive me. When he is in the streets of Tarbian, and he visits what's Scarpy, the storyteller Scarpy, and somebody says. Uh, tell us you know, a different story. I can't remember exactly how the context goes, but he says, well, there's only one story. I know some pieces of it. You know, I'll tell you some pieces of it, but there's only one story. And, and you know, that's an interesting way. It's, it's hardly a Rothfuss original, right? Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting way to think about how stories work. And so as annoyed as I was at the beginning when he mm -hmm. said, well, maybe the beginning is really at this part. Mm -hmm. it was, I, I groaned a little bit, but I do think it has something to do with that, where, mm -hmm. no, the story began even far before, uh, you know, before Quoth was ever born, but where does his story start? Well, mm -hmm. it's when he was born, but where does this story start? Well, you know, you have mm -hmm. to find the, the place where you want to start this part of the story, mm -hmm. like capital T, the story. And that's also the reason why I know a lot of, there were some people who on, I think it was on Reddit or on Facebook, whatever, that were... They were complaining about the land race section, about the land race stories. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, even though I haven't finished what's been written in terms of both books or anything like that, I know that those stories have to be told 
because they are what have created the Chandrian, which are his big driving force here. Mm -hmm. um, and so sure, I mean, you can argue whether or not it could have been done differently or whatever. I love those sections, actually. Me too. I, I, I hate most of Tarbian, but because I don't, like, if Vin had stayed a street urchin for the entirety of Mistborn, I probably wouldn't like it as much. I just right. didn't care for that section. Um, and I, I don't care. You know what it reminded me of more than anything else was, um, did you ever read Ender's Shadow? That's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah, that's, that's it has what it much more. Me of a lot of people bring up like, oh, it's like an adult version of Harry Potter because he goes to school and learns magic. And I'm like, no, it's much more of an Ender's Shadow feel than it is a Harry Potter feel. Anyway. Yeah. That's what it reminded me of. But let's back up a little bit. So he's traveling in the caravan with his parents and the rest, the rest of the Ademaru. Ademaru, I think is how Patrick Rothfuss says it. Um, so anyway, and they, so they travel around. They're a minstrel show. and they, they put on shows that, hey, come see the amazing bearded woman or something. And eventually his, his, his father. Just, all I see is his father as Hugh Jackman now. <laughs> his father says, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a song, and it's going to be good. It's a story that nobody really tells anymore. I'm, I've spent years crafting this story and pulling in all these things that, that uh, people haven't heard for generations, researching. And anyway, so he's, it's almost ready. The song right. is almost ready. And he performs just a little bit of it one night. And then, is it later? Is it literally later that night, or it's a little bit after that? No, like they it's, take it's off the, down the road. Yeah, they anyway, take off down the road, and they get stopped by a tree. So they, which, so the the caravan stops, and everybody gets murdered except for both, who was out gathering firewood so his parents could do it. And have some alone time. They could, they could commit. So they could do it, and <laughs> he comes back, and everybody's dead. And he finds a bunch of people sitting around. Uh, sitting around blue flames. Right, sitting around this blue flame, and he's in shock, and they almost kill him, but then they have to go, but they're, you know, magical creatures. Zordon yeah. calls. Then they, Zord yeah, exactly, yeah. Zordon bam, bam, says. Bam, bam, bam. They all do the dog thing, and they all, and then they're gone. <laughs> so, so it's this really, uh, it's, it's, this is the moment in the book, and some people ask, I, I, I apologize, I don't have everybody's Reddit handles in front of me to know who asked this question, so I'm sorry. But a lot of people said, what was the point in the book for you that kind of, you know, what was the turning point, the thing that made you want to keep reading? Well, this was right. that chapter for me, was when he came back and he finally had, he finally had an interesting conversation with somebody, which was the demon guy with the blue eyes. You didn't think the conversations with Ben? Some of the conversations with Ben were interesting. I'll give you that. Uh, I'm mostly being facetious. But anyway, but this, <laughs> but this was the point in the book where I was like, okay, I'm in. This, uh, this is a good story. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's sad that it takes your parents getting shredded to, for that to be the case. But it is the case. So now yeah. he's on his own. But then we start into what I think is one of the less... Um, <laughs> it's... It's a weird moment in the story for me. So he's now he's in shock, and he goes and lives in the woods like a little wolf child, right. and all he has is his father's lute, and he's uh, and he learns how to play the lute really well. And he's out there for months, uh, kind of living on his own, foraging, 
and playing this lute like this. <laughs> and like that. he says, uh, and the lute strings start to break. One breaks and he keeps playing. Two breaks and he keeps playing. And then the third breaks and he's like, well, I guess I got to go get this repaired. So he goes out on the road. Later on in Tarbian, uh, somebody says, well, why don't you go here? Or why, why, did, why did you stay in Tarbian? Why didn't you just leave? And he says something like, well, that's hundreds of miles away. I would have starved. And I'm like, you lived for two months on nothing but like loot music. Don't tell me you can't leave. So that was a bit of a that was a bit of a weird moment for me. But uh, okay, so now we're in Tarbian. Ryan, you said this was not your favorite bit. Why is that? Um, I I dwelling inside of maybe it's just child suffering um, and bullying and things like that. I just don't don't I I, I get bored children, with these sections. Children in peril. Well, and it's not just like part of it is that like having a child in peril issue like bugs me, but I get bored with these sections of the street rat life and going because I feel like it cycles through the exact same thing in every single one of these stories. It's find the bully, bully beats me up, bully breaks something that I have that is important to me, and then I have to get back at the bully. And that's gonna like that's you have that little cycle, and this is this is Cavill's story, and everywhere he goes, mm -hmm. like Tarby and the university, everything so far, he'd find the bully, have that issue, and in Tarby, and especially considering how much of a savant Cavill is supposedly already, like the fact that he is staying there, and it's justified by saying, "I was in shock because of my parents' death for this long," I, I didn't buy it enough for the I didn't buy it because this character is too smart too adaptable to have been that miserable for that long so here's what I think is going on Kyle Ken maybe you guys can weigh in on this this it, it's it's not that that it's so believable for the character it's that this is what Patrick Rothfuss needed because he needed his character to be orphaned and he needed his character to be young enough when he was orphaned for it to hit him in that way, for him to be you know, non-functional or in shock or whatever. But then he needs to get him to the university, and that's got to happen at a certain point in the book. And he, like, it's, so if people go to the university when they're 18, 19, 20, and he goes when he's 12, that's going to be too unbelievable to get him in there. But if he just lets him wait a few years. You know, if he just lets him wait a few years, then it'll be, it's you can buy it. Because we've all heard about those 16-year-olds that go to Harvard and they're, you know, they're really successful or whatever. Um, and so this was, in my, in, in my opinion, this was a pure authorial, dictatorial play here. It wasn't about, like, the believable character, right? Yeah, I can, I can see that and maybe I'm okay with that. It doesn't improve the reading experience for me on that one. Maybe not, but it, it helps me excuse it. Yeah, there's another... Um, I don't want to jump into too much, but um, I recently read another book series um, that had a very similar start. Young child, orphan, going to this school of... It's called to, Harry Potter. <laughs> um, it, he's going to this school where they basically create rangers, you know. Um, is it the Ranger's Apprentice? No. Oh. That's a fantastic book. Um, and it, it follows a very similar path where this child has to deal with, you know, losing his parents and going through things. And I had this I had this same feeling here feeling here that I had when I was reading that one. I'm like, 
it's time to go to the university. Like we have your reasoning, because here in Tarbian, you said it's it's the reappearance of the Chandrian that that kind of spurs him on, that yeah. breaks him out of it right. and says, "Oh, I need to go through." I I don't know. Maybe it just was unsatisfying to me. It's I don't think it's poorly written. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just I was very bored in Tarbian and wanted him to move on, except for when we were with Scarpy the storyteller. Yeah, her learning the legend of this world that we're in, which is part I, of what knocks him out of his stupor. Also, the story—I mean, he tells the story of Haliax and Lanray and all that, mm -hmm. and then at the at the same time, he sees the the Chandrian that you know burns his entire family, and all of a sudden, it jump started back into motion. I think we're missing a really key element that we haven't talked oh about. Oh boy, Kyle's uh, gonna mansplain us. Gonna mansplain you. Um, we didn't we didn't talk about at all what his lessons and things were that With he was having with Ben. So he learns a really important tool um, about mental like mental exercises. So the Alar, I think, is what they call it. Um, Aler. In the whatever. audio book, it's the Aler. The Aler. Yeah, I don't know. I'm yeah. reading it. Um, so basically, what this is is that he's able to focus on something and create two realities for himself. So like the rock will fall or the rock will float up. And he can believe this, those, both of those things at the same time. Um, and it talks about how when he, t when he taught him the Ehler and the, the heart of stone technique, um, it says it lets you set aside your emotions and prejudices and lets you think clearly about whatever you wished. Now, on the surface, this feels a lot like Flame in the Void from uh, Wheel of Wheel Time. Of time. It's, just yeah. a, it's just a focusing ex exercise, but I think it's more than that. I think, um, you know, Kvoth, or, yeah, Kvoth talks about how he used to try to, on one side of his mind, hide a stone. On the other side of his mind, he's trying to find the stone. And he actually found that a lot of the times one half of himself was toying with the other half. Like, he didn't actually hide the stone because he wanted to see how long it would take him to realize that he didn't hide the stone instead of finding the stone. And so what I think is actually happening here and for his whole time in the woods and in Tarbian is that when he returns and he sees his family has been destroyed, he's dividing his emotions and he's dividing his subconscious into two different versions of himself. And so he doesn't actually retain as much knowledge and his, you know, you're saying he's such a savant and, and he's got all these abilities to do these things. That's one side of him. And, and he's, he's currently on the other he's side. He's turned that off and he's on the other side. So he's basically this feral child out in the woods. And then he goes and he becomes this street urchin. And he doesn't get kicked back into that until the Chandrians show, show back up because that kind of knocks him back into, oh, here's these other things that I have to do. Yeah, and good. so there's these mental separations that are happening all throughout the book. Um, and I don't think that it's just uh, this is what Rothfuss needs, needs to happen. I think it's an underlying thing that this is what he's making happen on a subconscious level with his character. So you're saying side one of his brain hypnotized side two of his brain. Not necessarily. <laughs> but I do think that there's more of a mental, like this is, this is the magic system. It's very subtle. It's not overt and like, hey, you burn this piece of tin or you channel the one power and you do these things. This is where the magic system lies is in these mental exercises and he's and like, We've talked about, I mean, the whole book is the name of the wind. He's, the, the names are super important. They're not, it's not an overt system that you're going to see. Everything's going to be kind of sub-level. And this is where the character progression of Quoth, as he goes from, like I said, feral child out into the woods to feral street urchin child to 
deciding that he actually needs to go to the university. This is because he's put into practice with his capabilities, because he is such a savant, he's put into practice what he's learned, although he doesn't really quite understand how to control that, so that he's divided his mind or divided his personality. And I think this goes to a deeper level when you're outside of the framed story, so you're in the framing exercise back in the inn with Coat and Quoth and whatever. I think that Coat is genuinely a different person than Quoth. I think that there are two separate people there. And that yeah, he, you see like when he, when he gets all fired up and has, like Bast and Chronicler fight each other. And Quoth both comes, out. comes out and Chronicler basically is like, oh man, this is what it's like to be in a story. This, the fear is what happens. And Quoth turns and he's got these dark eyes or whatever. And he kind of comes out of that and he's able to do the things that he's trained. We don't know what those are yet because we haven't gone through the story. But he has these abilities. Same thing with the Scraling. When the Scraling shows up, he knows what to do. Um, and he can handle that thing. But then he likes to set himself back onto the other side and become coat again and not deal with it and just be the innkeeper. So he's subdividing his personality. I could buy that. I could buy that. Yeah, that's a... Compartmentalization. It's good excuse. Sort of, sort of but, it's, but it's more on the, like, it's the actual uh, magic system or device that the author has chosen to do Maybe. rather than just the general, like, oh, I'm... I've had I, this trauma, and this is how it's happening. If I can it's go back consciously to, if I can go back to Wheel of Time, because you brought up that as kind of mm -hmm. a counterpoint. So the Flame in the Void is this concentration exercise, and he continues to use it uh, to access the One Power. But the One Power is not the Flame in the Void. Mm -hmm. And I would, I, so I'll be interested to see if this series ends up going in your direction that you're talking about, where it's like this is the magic system learning how to do this with your mind, or if it's those mental exercises that will allow him to access the magic more readily, mm -hmm. a la Randall Thor. Sure. So, anyway. Uh, but I like that. That's, you've, you've maybe convinced me of something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what. So, whatever. Um, okay. What was I going to talk about? So, are, are we done with Tarbine? We good there? Go. So then we go on the road. Tar being there, done that. Tar, tar, tar being, being there. there. That's right. Tar, tar done that. That was awful. But it was. I loved, I loved it. It was awful. I mean, that's what I'm here for. I think, I think Ryan I just had an aneurysm. The resident awful. <laughs> the one last thing I will Someone's say. Someone's got about, to fill in for Todd. <laughs> the one last thing I want to point out about Tar being is it, it, I think it was important for us to see him meet uh, the, the old priest. Uh, who was taking care of all of the infirmed kids and everything, and it was—I think it was important at that point to see that that there was somebody who could actually be counted on to to take care of you if you if you needed it, or or not everybody was bad basically. Because I mean, the moment he runs into the street urchins, and the moment he can't find the old farmer again, he goes, "Everybody's against me. Every mm -hmm. it's every man for himself." And here's a little old man who, you know restores your faith in humanity, basically. And I, I, it, it wasn't a lot in there, but I think it was important. Okay. So. Well, that's some, okay, so, so maybe we get off of the, uh, the story stuff, because this is it. Like, we've now recapped the entire story. Right. Um, and so there is that moment when he picks up the loot. Obviously, he was in the woods for months practicing his loot and learning all this stuff. Um, so Sean, 
would like us to uh, talk about what are your thoughts on the lute and music's presence in the story? Also, uh, well, let's just start there. The lute and the presence of music. I can tell you, I remember very, very little about when I read this for the first time back in, gosh, it must have been 2008 or so. So the first time I read it, didn't retain much. But one thing I remember is thinking, well, geez, this is some, like, this is some amateur musician's wet dream kind of book. <laughs> like, this, you know, I don't know, I have no idea Patrick Roth, this is uh, background with music or anything like that, but it felt to me like, you know, maybe, maybe Roth was, never did learn how to play an instrument and he really wanted to. Or maybe he started and didn't get far enough. Or maybe he is really good at something and just wishes he were as good as the people he keeps going and seeing in concerts. You this know? is the D&D minstrel yeah, story. Exactly. Like Everybody exactly. wants to be the wizard or the, or the warrior. And like, this is the minstrel. Is and the so bar. like, this is their time to shine. Like, here we are. <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of, right? Yeah. So, I don't know. Ryan, you're a musician. What do you think? of the music in this story so far? Um, the music in this story is a connection for, for him to his family. Um, does it serve another purpose right now in the story? It's not part of, it currently is not part of the magic system. Um, I think that it is, the music is going to play a bigger role because it's going to connect with the idea of naming. Those two elements are gonna to come together. Mm. Um, that's that's my prediction from the beginning here is that those you'll start to to find them you know you'll find the names of things in songs or whatever or songs will be how you discover information about the chandra and how you discover the things because that's one of the better ways information survives is when it is the yeah. turned into a simple you know children's song i would say he that. actually says that i don't know i had it underlined but i can't find it but he says you'd be surprised, you'd be surprised what surprised what information in a way in children's yeah so and then that's part of that that prologue we were talking about is one of the things he calls attention to that you know if there had been music but of course there was no music and mm -hmm. i i always thought that was interesting like of course there was no music i don't know why they're like that's the phrasing that he used but like it just it tells you that music is important even if it hasn't shown even if we don't know why yet it's going yeah. to be a piece of this this story yeah, yeah. i i agree and uh, his being really good at the loot and everything, like, I don't know, I, for, for me originally, the first time going through this, I felt like this is how he's going to make it. This is his, this is his coping mechanism. This is how he's going to cope with this, is how he's going to be able to support himself, how he's going to be able to go through. He'll always have his music to fall back on. Mm -hmm. Well, then we get to Tarby, and the first thing that happens is the loot, his father's loot gets smashed, and, which irritated me. But <laughs> um, <laughs> So why, why, why did that irritate you? I'm not going to let you breeze past that. Well, it, I, it's, it makes sense as to why it happens story-wise. I'm just saying that it irritates me because that was his support system, and now it's gone, which is it's a good storytelling mechanism. Yeah, it's it happens, the classic take everything away. Yeah, put him at rock bottom. That's yeah. what Tarbine is, is. Let's get him to rock bottom to build from here. Um, it doesn't mean I have to like it and go, oh, that's a great stroke of genius. Like... <laughs> Well, actually, that brings up a, a question that I have, which is what you just said. This is rock bottom. I hope it's not. I hope Tarbian is not rock bottom, because if it is, that's awfully early in this story, right? 
It's yes, it's rock bottom as far as he is able to understand his at his tender age at this world in terms of what we understand of this world and what we can get away with right now. That is rock bottom. There will be deeper valleys than that in this story, um, but to get to light that spark to get him going, that is where rock bottom is for coming out of that life. We're going to enter into a, a new life. This other half here as he develops magic, as he starts to discover demons and, you know, you know, as we deal with music, everything, it's going to become bigger and the stakes will become a bigger deal, I would assume. Otherwise, this story sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so we've got uh, a few more minutes left. I want to kick it to you guys. What sort of points do you want to bring up? Uh, Ken, let's start with you. What do you want to talk about? Do we want to talk about in-book or um, I want to keep it... I, you're yeah. talking plot versus prose. Well, what I, do you want to talk about, Ken? I, I personally, I like. I, I know it came up a lot on the uh, Reddit thread, but the first person versus third person, uh, uh, not literature, but the uh, narration. narration, and uh, how he used that as a as a storytelling mechanism, and I thought it was fantastic. I I thought a lot of the book was a little bit too flowery in the sense of this is an English professor who's writing a story and throwing as much flowery prose in there as possible and a lot of it was unnecessary. But that being said, I thought it was very good. And I thought that the mechanism for going first person to third person was fantastic for separating what action or how I'm supposed to be viewing the action at the time. So uh, does, it, does it bother you at all to know that Kvothe will make it through anything this story has to Throw at him. No. Anything the framed story has exactly. to throw at That's him. That's what I'm talking so about. So I'm going to say we have two different stories happening, or probably multiple, but we don't know what's going to happen outside the framed story, the three days or that he's telling Chronicler that story. Right. He'll make it at least to the Waystone Inn to tell Chronicler. We don't know what's happening after that. And so. that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say too. I, I, I'm interested to see what happens when the story's done, and I thought, how long does this story go? And then I found out from you know, reading the questions and all that, apparently each book is, is a different day of the story. I'm like, we're telling this same story for three books. When are we getting to the after story? When are we getting to the stuff with the Skraelings coming back and post him telling Chronicler the story? I'm, I'm interested to see how he meets Bass. I, so, you know, I think that... I, I want to answer my own question a little bit. Like, does it, does it bother you that, that there are no stakes? You know, you could say that. Well, I think I think there are plenty of state. I, well, okay, I'll answer my question then. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna say I, I I guess yes I can see you know there's kind of an invincibility in that obviously he makes it through the first person story because here he is telling it you know to the chronicler but no that doesn't necessarily bother me does it bother you Craig Thanks Ken <laughs> I'm so glad you asked good God man get to the point. <laughs> so it doesn't bother me, and the reason it doesn't bother me is that uh, there are other stakes. And in any story, you know, Luke Skywalker is going to survive. Harry Potter, unfortunately, is going to survive. <laughs> you know, like at least until the bitter end of the story, this character is going to survive. And so it doesn't bother me. I think he creates stakes in other ways by saying, you know, by bringing up the woman, right. and you don't know who that is or what happened with her uh, you know the what Kyle mentioned there it's a silence of things missing or whatever the phrase was um, there are other stakes that are provided 
Well, and not not every story is a grand scale like save the world story. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, there are other stakes. So, like he, we know that he he's labeled the king killer. We don't know what that means, but it means he killed a king. It means he had to go out on a limb. Or, it mean, or, or it means that people think he killed a king. Well, yeah, but we know that it means that he had to go into hiding and not be, you know, not continue whatever life it was that he had before that. So. Who knows what that, like, what stakes that, you know, what what are those stakes on on that side? But it just means that there are, it's not that kind of grand scheme, overarching, gonna kill the devil kind of story. Well, not every stake has to be the ultimate stake of was our character gonna die. It's I'm so hungry now. That's what I was gonna say. Is like now all I'm thinking about is I want a steak. Yeah, survival is the simplest of. Steaks in <laughs> literature. Let's say steak more. Um, steak. It's not. Uh, if the only thing that you're <coughs> wondering is whether or not your person survives, turn to the end of the book in any book and see if their name is there. Like the journey along the way and what they what they will pay the cost of getting them to where they are is far more valuable than whether or not they actually get there. Right. And it's how much and how great is the cost there that makes it worthwhile. Um, I I don't care that Harry Potter survives. I'm okay with it. I don't care that I know that Kvothe's going to make it. I don't care that in all the star, like that I know in the new Solo movie that'll be coming out, like that Han Solo's going to make it in the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs you know, or whatever. <laughs> I under, don't, under 12. I don't care any of that because it's the rest of the story that matters to me. Journey it's, it's before destination. I you know I I want a bingo card, I want a bingo card that has things like journey before destination on it, and just I'm just gonna sit here and mark, as you guys like check off all these things. <laughs> bingo, Ken said journey before destination. Like so, I wasn't gonna come on. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for it. Um, okay, we've got a few more questions. I I, I want to bring up. I'm gonna create one, that and put that out there for our listeners and be a like, bingo card. <laughs> for, for our own episode. One hundred percent, we need a bingo card, yeah, okay. and like we need to like randomize it and send out PDFs to people. Make 100%. it happen. Make it happen, Jeff Wu. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let's let's give him more to do. Uh, okay, so I want to kick it to Kyle after this question. Uh, Taylor Hall's mouth, which is a very <laughs> odd Reddit username, right. asks, "Is a hamburger a sandwich?" No. It's hamburger. It is a sandwich. No. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> meat and other ingredients between two pieces of bread. No, it's a hamburger. That's why so, it's called a hamburger. <laughs> I thought I thought the more important question that was inferred there is a hot dog a sandwich. Yeah, hot dog is a sandwich. No. Yeah. No. That's why we invented the word hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> Kyle will not be moved. It's I thought that was just to describe somebody from Humble. It's it, for me. It's like yeah, it's the old thing about um, a square is a rectangle, but a rectangle is not a square. So like a, a the rectangle is the is the uh, parent category, and the sandwich in the same way is the parent category. And uh, okay, so the hamburger, done. gold jacket, green jacket. Who, who gives did? a shit? <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kyle, go on. What's your next point? I just wanted to make sure I got to that for Taylor Hall's. Oh, mouth. okay. <laughs> And that's um, probably the most deep and committed to anything that we've been on this episode. I know. I, I've i been very, very wishy-washy so far. And it now I'm just last. more hungry, dang it. Okay, go ahead. Um, chapter 23 is something I want to call out, which okay. is when Quoth is 
listening to is it it's Trappist I think his name Trappist mm -hmm. I don't Trappist, know Trappist. Yeah. so it was kind of he kind of brought it up earlier when he was listening to a story from Scarpy but it's almost opposite from what you said he said that Trappist said he doesn't he doesn't know any stories and Quoth thinks to himself everyone knows at least one story and Scarpy's point was there is only one story um, so Tarpy starts telling the story of Telu and so it's kind of this whole like you get the whole history, like info dump, world between building. the two characters. Yeah. So, you, well, even just in this, like, just in this story, where you get the whole back story, the whole history of the world, world building, and I think it's a really a job, really well done by Rothfuss. This is how you info dump. This is how you give people information that they need. You do it in a storage structure like this, where it's part of the narrative, and. Uh, I thought he did a really good job of when Tarpies is trying to tell the story. Trappist. Trap. Trappist, sorry. I'm Scarpy Trap. Names, man. <laughs> Anyways, uh, when he's trying to tell the story, he is doing a really poor job at it. Because um, he starts and he's like, oh, it was, what does he say? Um, it's, sim it's similar to how Quoth starts where he doesn't know how to begin the story. And he's like, oh, it's, it's about the church. Oh, no, the church didn't exist yet or whatever. And there's enough of those um, interjections that it's really difficult to tell a story cohesively um, as, a, as an author while maintaining that element and keeping it true to life that this guy's not a good storyteller, but Rothfuss is a pretty good storyteller and he's demonstrating that this character can't tell the story. Um, but the story of Taylor in general, I thought it was really, really interesting because it's so closely tied to kind of that Christianity feel. Oh my gosh, it was it was like, right out of the right out of the Old yeah. and New Testaments, right? Exactly, and and it gives you that familiarity um, enough to kind of go with it. So it's saying like because I'm kind of steeped in Western culture, mm -hmm. I I understand the stakes of this story. Yep. Uh, instinctively mm -hmm. right exactly because there is so much to try to take in and there's so many confusing elements and the framework of the story is different and it is a little bit jarring you're getting something very familiar to yeah. kind of latch on to um, as you're going forward so. it's not it's not a hundred percent one-to-one no Jesus but it's is Taylor but it's, it's close enough dark. yeah it's pretty close so it's it I thought that was really well done. So, I mean, that's that whole chapter, 23, is that whole story that Trappist tells, and thought it was good. Yeah, the Bible would have been very different if Jesus took a hammer and started hitting people when he came back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Out of the tomb, Mjolnir! <laughs> no, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, uh, Jesus as the farmer in the Little Bunny Foo Foo nursery rhyme. <laughs> Bopping him on, him on the head. head. But, yeah, I mean, you, when you go through that story, you, you understand where the Chandrian come from, why they're there. Um, you know, everybody but seven crossed Telu's line and decided to join him, and those seven are the Chandrian um, walking around being demons. I don't know. Yeah. So. And we literally, that also gives us the scope of the evil of what we're dealing with here in the sense of straight defiance of God, fallen people during the darkest time, and they are ancient. Right? Mm -hmm. They've We've got years millennia of experience here that our hero has to go up against mm -hmm. like you want to set the stakes of your villains this was a really great way to do it 
Uh, okay, so lastly, uh, I think maybe we ought to talk about the thing. <laughs> the, the thing. Finally, we're going to talk about the thing. Oh, sympathy in the discussions with Ben? Sure. Go ahead. <laughs> I was talking about the naming of things. No, I, that, I do want to talk about that. Yeah. Go ahead. No, it's one of my favorite sections in this are his interactions with Ben and the introduction of sympathy um, as a magic system. We've kind of touched on what the magic system is already in discussions with the Ailer and then the splitting of the personality and things like that. Uh, this is a great magic system in that it is, in what we understand of it so far, because it is still ethereal and unknown, but with some hard lines that, like, as Ben's talking about how to do things, then the first time that he tries to bind his breath. To the wind. To the, the wind. wind. <laughs> and ends up just about killing himself. We go, okay, there are boundaries to this that we can so that we can Rules, wrap our heads yeah. around. It's not just, all right, anytime you need to solve something, just say, you know, these three magic words and it's all taken care of. Which also, by the way, I, we get this big deal about like being able to name the wind and call the wind. I'm not sure that's the most useful thing in every situation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but well, and there are lots of stories out there too that the wind, being able to call the wind, is the most important, well, most so powerful thing. And I think there's a lot. I think Ken is right. There's it's go. This goes back to a lot of things beyond just this story. So the idea of knowing the true name of something. This is a very, very old concept. Oh, yeah. It goes as far as I know. It goes back to Judaism, probably before. But like in uh, in ancient Judaism, they from the beginning they did not say the name of God. There are probably some other things in there, but names are very important. And this shows up in, in Ursula Le Guin, and it shows up in those... Uh, oh, in the Belgariad. And the, it, in the Belgariad. It show, well, and it shows up in Harry Potter. I mean, yeah. it shows up everywhere. If you know the right word for something, it has power. So, yes. like, that's a thing. Um, the other... Oh, shoot. What was the other thing I was going to bring up? Rose? No, no. I don't know. Uh, uh, what were we just talking about? What was the point you just made? Sympathy being a strong system because it had boundaries. I don't know. Well, while you're well, on the while you're on the wind topic, like the oh the wind, that was it. Thanks, Kyle. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's the other thing that Good goes job, back man. a long way is that um, is that wind is often used as a representation of say. God. That's what I was going to say. And so, okay. you know, we talked about it in our Wheel of Time podcast or whatever. It's used as that representation. It's something that you can feel, but you can't see, you, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, it's used as that rep representation. And so knowing the name of God or having that faith or whatever, it's just that idea that, there, like you said, there are power. there is power in knowing the name of something or knowing or just knowledge in general. Right. So symbolically, mm -hmm. knowing the name of the wind is a big deal. The end. Well, I, okay, I, what else did you want to say about it? Was that, did we exhaust it for you? No, if I had more concrete quotes or things to pull out on it, I'd probably delve further into it. But I think it's very interesting that at the beginning when Ben first joins the troupe, Kvoth uh, and, I mean, Rothfuss as a whole, it makes it very clear that sympathy and showmanship are not the same thing. Because he uses like he uses fake lamps to create light and thing, or, uh, to do light and things like that, and uh, the difference between an arcanist and 
um, general magicians or whatever, like that to be someone who does who is who does sympathy well, who, to be a true arcanist, is something above just knowing parlor tricks or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, and I'm very interested to learn more about hopefully the um, disc. The don't hit your mic. Not um, <laughs> the what, what disc? The one that Ben wears. That amulet thing. The amulet that yeah that when both touches it, his arm goes numb. Oh yeah. That oh, signifies yeah. a true arcanist. I completely forgot about that. I mean, that's why he's he's going to. I mean, it's part of what he's going to the university for, is so that he can become an arcanist and right. get that. Um, I, there's there's more to that piece, and I have a feeling that that's going to come back down the road, even though um, we know he doesn't make it through the university, because he says, if I was expelled before, uh, most people right. get in, put right. in. But. Um, I also think that, uh, sorry, going back to Ben and his conversations with Ben around learning about all this magic stuff, uh, the Ben stuff is more so than anything else we've seen so far where Rothfuss gets to insert his little authorial asides and his philosophy on a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell. So we get little things like, um, why do we stop for the gray stones? Tradition, my boy, he said grandly, and superstition. They are one and the same anyway. I think it's actually his dad, but it's in that section. Superstition and tradition are the same anyway. I don't know if I think that's completely accurate, but it's an interesting thing to talk about or to think about. Um, Or how about, uh, oh, I like this one a lot. You're clever. We both know that. But you can be thoughtless. A clever, thoughtless person is one of the most terrifying things there is. Uh, I got one for you, too. Okay, he says, uh, if you're going to impose your will on the world, you must have control over what you believe. So that's kind of one of those just nice. figure it out first before you Here you go. Here's act. another one. It's throwing quotes that kind of are his authorial discussion here. Okay, I'm excited. Remember this, son. If you forget everything else, a poet is a musician who uh, can't sing. I love that one. Words have to find a man's mind before they can touch his heart, and some men's minds are woefully small targets. Music touches their hearts directly, no matter how small or stubborn the mind of the man who listens. Interesting coming from a guy who's writing a book and not a song, right? Right. He might, yes. And writing a lot of poetry within that book. There is, there is, we're segueing into what you're, what what you've been sighing about since we started this. I, yeah. (laughs) The prose of this and versus the poetry versus the whatever you want to call it of this story. Sure. Um, I I am not a, by any stretch of the imagination an expert in that realm. I didn't study it. I don't know very well. I barely get grammar right <laughs> half the time. Okay. Yeah, we know. Um, but there are times, especially as people have pointed out some things to me, that I think that this man's ability and crafting of phrasing and words is among the best out there because there are times that this is song-like in the way that it is written. Okay. Ken, what you were about to say? I'll throw your point out so he has something to refute. Yes. yes <laughs> no, no, I, exactly. I okay. Look. Yes, I'll buy that. But I made I made my point earlier in that I his prose and the way he writes is beautiful. I just it feels very overdone to me. It feels very English professor turned author 
Let me make this as flowery and as flourishy as possible, and that's. I want to know what if, what if it is done with intent, and what if it is done out of just his personal style. style. Personal, yeah, right. Yeah. And, I, there and I else? think there is a sliding scale there because I, I think part of it, and both the way he tells the story, I think it's done very purposefully that it is it is very flowery or very well you know, prof profound, I guess, for lack of a better word. Someone else pointed this out on Reddit, and I, I thank you and I hate you. <laughs> um, I don't remember who did it, but that sometimes he describes the same thing like with Denna or three times. Three times. Three and times. It's, cool. And being that three and seven are like perfect numbers in this world, like I'm curious, okay, is that intentional that Kvothe just naturally does this three times? So Rothfuss makes sure he describes things three times and does it. And in that case, wow. That's impressive. Good, you know. That's that's an author owning. It's definitely intentional because he does it so much, yes. like over and over and over again. You could cut out, you know, five thousand words out of this. If you just went he, I was, was going to say it's either not, that or his his uh, editors were pushovers, one or the other. Yeah, it's not well, even. I mean, it's no, not I even. Everybody has their own style. Yeah, everybody yeah. has a style, and that's fine. And it doesn't like. Not everybody has to write the same way, and it's okay for him to do this. And if I were an editor, and somebody gave me this manuscript with all these like descriptions in threes, then I would either say I'm not going to publish this guy because this annoys me, or uh, or what I would say is no, this is how this guy writes, and you know, and if it's good enough to be published, it's good enough to be published. Full stop. Right. There may be tweaks that you want to do, but this is how he operates, and I like. I don't see a big problem with that. It's a matter of taste. <clears> the a thing, point, the thing right? that I like yeah. is that it's not just that he describes something three different ways; he does almost everything in threes. So he starts the story three different times. Mm -hmm. He has planned this story to be a trilogy. He has, you know, he'll describe something three different ways. He talks about the box that's locked up in the room and that there's three different types of locks on it. Mm -hmm. um, there are a, It's a silence of three parts. So everything, both macro and micro scale, is usually done on that three levels. Right. And you should appreciate three levels. I, I can, <laughs> yeah, for anybody who's new to the podcast, you'll, you'll learn about the three levels soon enough. Um, anyway, but I want to bring this up. There was a, and I and I apologize to anybody who has heard me talk about this before, but I know we're going to have a lot of new listeners for this. And so I want to bring it up again because I do think it's incredibly relevant when it comes to Patrick Rothfuss. This is a passage from an essay by Arthur Clutton Brock. Uh, so this would have been around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and he's talking about the cardinal virtue of prose. And I remember, I remember very clearly wandering through the English language section of this library out in the middle of nowhere in France, and they had the Oxford Book of English Prose. And I opened it randomly to this page, and I read it. Literally changed my life in that one moment. And so that's why I remember it so clearly. And it's one of those little things. You know, you, you have those little things that you can always remember. Anyway, so Arthur Clutton Brock um, says, if the, let's see, Prose of its very nature is longer than verse, and the virtues peculiar to it manifest themselves gradually. If the cardinal virtue of poetry is love, the cardinal virtue of prose is justice. Um, 
And he goes on, he goes on. Uh, the master of prose is not cold, but he will not let any word or image inflame him with a heat irrelevant to his purpose. Um, let's see. In the best prose, whether narrative or argument, we are so led on as we read that we do not stop to applaud the writer, nor do we stop to question him. And if we're using the Arthur Clutton Brock test, uh, Rothfuss fails spectacularly. His prose is awful, according to this, which I totally buy into. However, the question is, is Rothfuss writing prose, or is he writing poetry? And so, it, so this is what I kind of get at when I say it's a matter of taste. If what you really like, and what I really like, is prose, then this, then Rothfuss may not be your cup of tea. Because he does make you stop. You'll stop in your tracks so many times, and you'll go, oh, what a way to turn a phrase. Um, and there is, I think there's some merit in that, and there's some merit in enjoying that. It's not my personal favorite way to read. I prefer to never think about the author ever uh, and just have the story unfold. Um, but that's, so it depends on what you prefer. And there were some passages in here that I thought were genuinely gorgeous, just wonderful. And there were some other ones that I thought, you know, yeah, yeah you might be trying a little bit too hard, whatever. But either way, whether I thought it was really wonderful or I thought it was not quite up my alley, with his word choice or whatever. Either way, it kind of fails that prose test of whether you consider the author. If he's making you think about him, then he's failing this particular test, right? I'm curious as to whether whether or not we can hold prose to that same holding prose to that same standard today. Um, what because language has changed so much, or human nature has changed so much? Well, I mean, simply. Because of what you say, they're like, we literally have founded four years, spent four years of our life delving into the way authors do things and taking note of what they're doing, like as what we do on this podcast. That's, and yes as and a no. and as a society, like this poorly done or not, critical eye on things makes it very difficult for us to, as if you've got in that mindset, to not notice the author and what they're doing. It's annoying is all get out when it comes to film and books and things like that when you start becoming a critical doing things with a critical eye that it becomes harder to enjoy sometimes it becomes harder to enjoy them because you are so much more aware only the best of the best i feel gets into the level where you can truly like you can't help but be like you don't see it at all because it's the best of the best nothing nothing shy of that cuts that great anymore well, that's fine, but I, I do think that what he's describing is an ideal, right? And nobody is going to reach that ideal. That's okay. It's something to strive toward if you're writing prose. But that's, again, this, that's according to this guy, and like I said, I kind of buy into this. That, that's definitely part of my personal aesthetic, uh, but it may not be for everybody. That's okay. I, I also think that, uh, one, I think Roth just pulls it off way more than he doesn't. Um, I think that there are probably many passages that have had just as much scrutiny and deliberate uh, word choices and, and structure and things like that 
that you do just read through and don't even realize what you're seeing um, more than are going to stop you in your tracks and be like, oh, wow, that was really great. Or even, oh, wow, that was, you're trying a little bit hard. I think he probably pulls it off way more than he doesn't. Um, I, I have examples. Sure, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, sorry, go on. No, and I was going to say, I do think that it's, it's probably a little bit of a blurred line between prose and poetry um, for this particular work. And we've talked about on past podcasts, you know, you've mentioned to me several times that you'd really love it for fantasy in general to be kind of accepted into academia as a legitimate form of literature. Um, that like, this is something that we should study. These are stories that are well told. These are stories that are structured. How that stories have something should, to say. That have things to say. Yeah. And I think that Patrick Rothfuss, more than anybody else before, coming before him or that I've seen so far is the author that has the most likely chance to bridge that gap because of the way that he writes. You're going to have people that from academia that will look at this and say, this is literature worth digging into. It just happens to be in the fantasy genre. And it, it, this is the type of story that will allow, like I said, that will bridge that gap and bring more people onto the side of, hey, Fantasy literature actually has legitimate things to say and should be studied on the same level as your classic literature or whatever else you want to bring into. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I, I mean, like I said, as far as up until now, I don't, I don't know of another story, and I obviously don't have infinite wisdom or whatever, but I don't know of another story that could, that could match it and be close enough. Uh, I, I'm inclined to disagree with the academic point, uh, with this being accepted by academics, just because I'm not sure, when, when you think about the classics mm -hmm. as such, very few people talk about the style. Uh, some, mm -hmm. Sometimes. It's it's an incidental discussion when it comes to the classics. What they talk about is the content. Okay, obviously Shakespeare is a is a uh, an exception I, to that. I, I will disagree one hundred percent because I can rattle off a few Shakespeare, Dickens, Faulkner, uh, Kafka. They, it's all about the style. Yeah, that's it's a all good about point. Okay, all right, all right. You, maybe you convinced me. I don't know. But like <laughs> twice in one episode. Wow. <laughs> Almost I'll persuade us. <laughs> three and we're no, good. Maybe, we're maybe, doing this in maybe, threes, guys. I don't know. But like, <laughs> I guess, and, and maybe, again, maybe it's just a personal aesthetic thing. I'm more interested in the content than the Sure, style. no, and that's fine. So. I mean, the, it definitely, it always comes down to taste. Like you said, there is no accounting for taste. Whether it's good taste, bad taste, whatever, that doesn't exist. It's just everybody has yeah. different taste. I want to I wanna be done. <laughs> <laughs> So, so let's steak. so let's do that. Um, but we so we've been going well over an hour now. So I have some examples of what I think are like good and and bad. Again, personally, what I think are good and bad. Sure. Uh, examples of his prose, and I will put that on Reddit when we post the episode. I'll I'll put some of that stuff up there. So if you're interested and you want to see that, go hit up Reddit and you can see that there. Um, anyway. Are we good? I, anything yeah. just absolutely burning that you guys need to talk about? No. Okay. Um, 
let's go. Thank you, everybody, for watching. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Again, thelegendarian.reddit.com. Go join the conversation there. Go subscribe on YouTube. And also go to iTunes. Leave us a review. We very much appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for watching and listening. We will see you for part two in uh, some weeks. I don't know how many that is, but we'll see. So I, I, I can't remember what the chapter. Three, three or seven. <laughs> I can't remember what the chapter delineation is, but it'll be 36 through something. 36 uh, weeks. We'll see you in 36 weeks. Yeah, it, again, go on Reddit and we'll post right everything there. So. 36 through 66. Okay, great. Uh, have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>